Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth forever. Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. He hath dispersed. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. May God bless to us this portion of his word. You know, in the ministry I see week in and week out uh, Christians who are living short of their privileges. Of course, we all do this to some extent, but uh, in many cases it becomes painfully obvious when people are fearful, people are unnerved, people are worried, uh, people do not appreciate what they have when they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The psalmist, who was faced with enemies, as is obvious here, he speaks of seeing his desire on his enemies, he speaks of uh, not perishing and so forth, as he is faced with various trials. Yet you notice what he says. He says that the heart is fixed. He says, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. He found a solution to fear and to worry and to this matter of being troubled all the time about what might happen. What does it mean when we say that his heart is fixed? It would mean that it is grounded on something that's immovable. What in the world is there that is immovable? Well, the Lord is immovable. And that's what it means, is his heart is fixed trusting in the Lord. We fix our hearts on something. We fix our hearts on our position with a company, and this makes us feel secure. Or we fix our hearts on our family, and that family makes us feel secure. Or many a wife, her whole security is wrapped up in her husband, and if her husband is suddenly removed, she is totally uh, thrown from any uh, sense of peace or calmness. Her security has been removed. But the foundation that is sure is when our heart is grounded on the Lord. And one occasion in the Old Testament, Jehoshaphat, the king of uh, the southern kingdom there, faced with terrific enemies, makes this statement, We have no might against this great company, neither know we what to do. Our eyes are upon thee. He had placed his trust in the living God. As a company of people, they had done this. He was like David going out to meet Goliath. Do you remember 
David, as he talks to Saul before he goes, Saul says, you're a fool. You cannot go against such a one. And David says, no. He said, the Lord who delivered me out of the paw of the lion and the paw of the leopard, paw of the bear, the same shall deliver me in this situation also. And then as he goes to meet Goliath, he says to Goliath, who mocks him, he calls out and he says, Goliath, you've come to me with a sword, with a shield, with a spear. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. David goes confidently. He had confidence before he ever started because his heart was fixed on the Lord. When you think about that approach, the words that ring home to me always are the words that Paul uses in the 8th chapter of Romans when he says, If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? John Calvin faced, as Luther was, with all of the forces of the then world lined up against him and the Reformation that he was a part of. Uh, Faced with uh, imminent danger day and night, he and his small band of Christians used to meet there in France, uh, down in the cellars uh, for their prayer meeting and their study. And uh, he would quote this verse often when they were tempted to be afraid. Calvin would say to the small band, If God be for us, who can be against us? They would sometimes say, But John, how do you know that God is for us? And he would say, Well, I have faith, don't I? I have faith, and faith is a gift from God. God must be for me because he gave me faith in his Son. All of the things that line up against us, the first thing that lines up against us is our guilt and our sin. But Paul, in that very context, goes on to say, Who is it that lays anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? When you think of that enemy of my guilt and my sin lined up against me, which would make me fear the present and the future, Against that, I can balance the fact that God, who created me, who will one day call me before a final great judgment, that God has declared me acquitted right now because of his Son, Jesus Christ. It's God who justifies. It's God who had Paul say that we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we are justified, that we are acquitted. If God justifies us, who can condemn us? It's Christ who died, yea, rather, who is risen again, and who is even now at God's right hand. Christ will one day be our judge, but he is the one who died for us, and he is the one to whom I am linked by my trust in him. Like the little boy said, if anyone's kept out of heaven for my sins, it'll have to be Jesus, <laughs> because they were put to his account. But he's already there. <laughs> We cannot be kept out of heaven for our sins once we put our faith in Jesus Christ. They were put to his account. He has paid for them, and he is already there. Our hearts are grounded on the Lord. 
And if God be for us, as he must be if our hearts are grounded on him, because just the very coming to such a grounding indicates God is for us, what can be against us? You know, to me, somehow, the study of the universe and the stars and the distances involved is a tremendous aid in dissolving fear. When I realize what God must be to have hung those stars out in space, that star Antares that is four times in diameter, the distance between here and the sun, four times 93 million miles in diameter, and God hung it out there, and we have no concept of the distances involved. They've discovered the quasi-stars now that they don't even call stars because they're too big to call a star, and they don't know what to call them. They call them quasi-stars. God, who did that, is for me. And when my heart is fixed in him, what in the world do I need to fear? Or again, it's grounded on his word. You remember Paul as he faces shipwreck. And uh, they've been driven by a storm night and day, as described in the book of Acts. And then the Lord stood by him one night and told him that while the ship would be wrecked, that everyone on the ship would be saved under uh, certain conditions that would be met. And Paul calls the uh, captain of the ship and the members there, and he tells them not to be afraid. He says, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. He had real calmness, real peace, because his heart was fixed in the promise that he had received from God, grounded on God's word. This fixing of our heart on God's word involves a fixing of our heart on God's word in spite of appearances, in spite of a time delay, in spite of many things beginning to line up against the fulfillment of that promise, you take Abraham. Abraham promised by God specifically that he would have a son in his old age, even though he was too old to have a child. And the things beginning to build up and him weakening in various ways. And yet we read over in Romans that he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Or you take the case of the walls of Jericho. You remember Joshua and his troops had been told that the walls of Jericho would fall down. What were they to do? They were to march around the city seven times. And then the seventh day, they were to march around it. They would march once each day for seven days, the seventh day, seven times around it. Can you imagine how it must have been in the back ranks? <laughs> Can't you see old Sam back there marching around? And as you march around, uh, the first day was all right. It got a little dusty. And then the second day, it was a little worse. And uh, Sam's talking to his buddy next to him. He said, what did they say was going to happen? And the third day said, the walls are going to do what? <laughs> and meanwhile, the people up on top of the walls throwing Coke bottles at them. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? You think the walls are going to fall down? 
And in the seventh day, seven times around, they were selling tickets to see it. <laughs> and then after you go around that seventh time, shout! <laughs> and yet they did it. They believed God. And they said, we're going to do it in spite of appearances. I don't believe there were any cracks in the wall on the sixth day. I don't believe there were any cracks on the wall in the wall on the sixth time around on the seventh day. I don't believe the wall cracked until they shouted, until they actually had fulfilled their part of it. And at that point, God's word came true. Fixing our heart on God's word means fixing it there in spite of appearances, in spite of time delays, and keeping on, keeping on. It's not only grounded on the Lord and grounded on his word, but it's grounded on his city, on that city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You remember that we're told over in Hebrews 11 that the way these men overcame, the way these men fought the good fight of faith, Abraham and Moses and these others, was that they looked beyond this world. They sought a city that this world couldn't provide, a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. As one of Bunyan's characters in Pilgrim's Progress, who is referred to as Mr. Feeble-Mind, this character, in speaking of his immortal hope, that hope which lies beyond the valley of the shadow and the grave, expressed it in this way. But this I am resolved on, to run when I can, to go when I cannot run, to creep when I cannot go. As to the main, I thank him that loved me. I am fixed. My way is before me. My mind is beyond the river that hath no bridge, though I am, as you see, but of a feeble mind. He wasn't so feeble-minded. His mind was fixed. It was beyond the river that hath no bridge. And thus he was enabled to go on and to crawl when he couldn't walk and to creep when he couldn't crawl. David said, I had fainted, and yes, I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David says, I'm enabled to keep on keeping on because my heart is fixed beyond the river that hath no bridge. That's what I seek, that portion that God offers to all of his own to live with him in a blessed fellowship forever. That's what it means, in a sense, to have our heart fixed on the Lord, grounded on him, on his promises that they will not fail us, and finally grounded on his city. Why? Why fix our heart on the Lord? Because we are told about his providence. We're told that not a sparrow falls, without our Heavenly Father, that he is in control of everything that takes place, that not a hair of our head can fall without his express permission. Once we realize that, it's an easy thing to begin to trust God in the different situations of life. God is in control of everything. God knows the future, and God knows what is best for us. Spurgeon has a statement in one of his books that goes like this. When your adventurous spirit 
hath sought to climb some lofty mountain, delighted with the prospect you scale, uh, this prospect of scaling many and many a steep, onward you climb up the rocky crags until at last you arrive at the verge of the snow and ice. There in the midst of precipices that scarcely know a bottom and of summits that seem inaccessible, you are suddenly surrounded with a fog. Perhaps it becomes worse and worse until a snowstorm completes your bewilderment. You cannot see a step before you. Your track is lost. A guide appears suddenly. I know this mountain, says he. In my early days have I climbed it with my father. Or each of these crags have I leaped in pursuit of the different animals here. I know every cavern. If you will follow me, even through the darkness, I will find the path and bring you down. But mark. Before I undertake to guide you in safety, I demand your implicit trust. You must not plant your feet where you think safest, but where I shall bid you. Wherever I bid you climb or descend, you must implicitly obey. And I undertake on my part to bring you safely down to your house again. You do so. You have many temptations to prefer your own judgment to him, but you resist them and you are safe. This is, in a sense, what God is asking us to do. He knows that he's called us to walk over dangerous territory, but he volunteers to guide us each step of the way if we will be implicitly obedient to him. This is something like I had to experience as a pilot when I would make a ground control approach. When you come into a field and the field is fogged in, they pick you up on a radar scope and they begin to... Direct your turns, your altitudes, your angles, your speeds. And they say you're a little to the left, you need to come to the right. And they are guiding you right between mountains, over hills, uh, with other plains in the area. You must implicitly obey. And time and time again, what they say seems to go contrary to what you think. You just have a feeling that this couldn't be right. You have a feeling there's a mountain in front of you over here and they're going to fly me right into it. But you know that they can see where you cannot see. They have the whole picture and you must implicitly trust them or you are doomed. This is the same type thing exactly that God is calling on us to do. There's a little poem that says, I'd rather walk with God in the dark than by myself in the light. I'd rather walk with him by faith than walk alone by sight. We fix our hearts on God because he promises us that he is in control of everything, that nothing can touch us except by his appointment, except he permitted. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We're to be like Joseph. You remember Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, going through a terrible time. Then later on, when he has opportunity to retaliate, he says to them, No, no, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It was his appointment. It was for a good purpose. And I trust him to bring it about. The result of such an approach of a heart fixed on God and on his word and on his city, a heart fixed on him because knowing that he's in control of everything, the result is peace. 
You will not be afraid of evil tidings. You will not wonder what that phone is ringing about. You won't panic when there's some strange-looking letter in the mail. You won't panic at uh, the news that comes on on the radio about different prognostications about the financial situation in the nation or about the situation in Red China. These things you don't hide your head in the sand from. You face up to them in all of the awful reality that is there. You don't in any way depreciate the situation. You understand that it is just as bad as it is pictured to be and probably much worse. And yet you have peace. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. Why? Because he knows nothing can touch him regardless of what happens to the nation, regardless of what happens to the world. Nothing can touch him without God's express permission. And God knows best. And God can be trusted. This is a reality in a number of lives. William Evans describes an experience that he had as a pastor. I went one day into the office of a physician, a friend of mine. He was a man over 60 years of age. A great sorrow had come into his life. His fiscal agent had proved to be a scoundrel and had robbed him of some $65,000 and in addition had made him responsible for the payment of another $30,000. All of this meant that the entire fortune of the physician had been lost. His home also had to be sold to meet the forthcoming obligations. And at his advanced age, the physician stood himself with the savings of a lifetime swept away. What should he do? Many a man in such an emergency has taken his life rather than face such a dark and dismal future. But not so with my physician friend. He had come to know Christ as his personal Savior and had implicit confidence in the life to come. And so instead of committing suicide, as many a man has, he reached out his hand, took mine, and said, A tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still I may sing, All glory to God, I'm the child of a king. Only recently I had the privilege of praying with a young man and his wife to they committed their lives to Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. One week later, the young man was dead. He knew that he was facing the possibility of this. He had cancer of the brain, it turned out to be. We knelt that night, and he committed his life. His wife committed her life. She had a two-week-old baby. And then after it was all over, as I sat and talked with her, the peace that is there and the calmness that never would have been there two weeks earlier, that God had given. And as the weeks have gone on since, more and more it radiates, more and more it comes out to touch other lives. This is a reality. Her heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord, and she's not afraid of evil tidings. Beloved, that's our heritage. We don't need to fear anything. We don't need to fear a loved one being taken. We don't need to fear the loss of a job or the loss of a nation. True, it may happen. But if God be for us, who can be against us? And for you who are here tonight and who don't know this peace that God gives in this way, 
you here here tonight who do not have these promises that the Christian has. They don't belong to you. All things don't work together for your good. They're all working to your ill, really. Will not tonight you choose this heritage for your own? Will not tonight you do the very thing that the psalmist says makes all the difference in the world and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and walk with him? It may be in the dark. I'd rather walk with him in the dark than by myself in the light.